0: Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I am joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, April 30th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined virtually by Caitlin Owens of Axios. Good morning. And we welcome to the podcast, Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Thank you for joining us, Mel. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. And later in the broadcast, I will talk to KHN's Carmen Heredia Rodriguez about the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. This month's patient thought she might have COVID-19, went to the doctor for what was supposed to be testing and treatment at no cost to her, and who could have seen this coming, got a really big bill. But first, the news. And guess what? We have some non COVID news. This week, the Supreme Court decided an Affordable Care Act case, but not that Affordable Care Act case. That one, the one that could invalidate the law, won't be heard until later this fall. This case involves something called risk corridors, which are payments the government promised to insurance companies to protect them from really big losses in the then brand new Obamacare marketplaces in 2014, 2015, and 2016. Republicans in Congress uh, saw that stopping the payments could be a way to undermine the law, and they did that. Insurers, not surprisingly, sued, and they won. I generally refer to this case as the, quote, bad business partner case, because it asked the court whether or not it's okay for the federal government to basically invalidate a business contract. The ACA specifically said, insurers, if you take this risk and you lose, we will cushion your losses. And by 8 to 1, the high court said, no, if the federal government promises to pay, they basically have to pay to the tune of $12 billion. So this feels really old, but I still think this case is important and maybe it tells us something about what the court might do on the bigger case earlier this year. What do you guys think? I think most notably,
1: obviously, it might tell us a little bit about the Texas case, but it also tells us about some other lawsuits. I mean, there are a lot of other risk corridor lawsuits that are sitting in lower courts that have sort of been on hold for this Supreme Court lawsuit, these will likely, I imagine, get picked up again with the lower courts taking guidance from the Supreme Court. It might also give some sense as to how the court will address the CSR lawsuit that those are those cost-sharing reduction payments um, that House Republicans had sued, um, then Obama Secretary Burwell over, um, and has kind of gone on for years when the Trump administration decided to stop paying the CSR payments. And those were payments to insurance plans that Helped cover some out-of-pocket costs for certain lower-income individuals. Um, so that lawsuit is, I believe, still pending in the court. And you know, might this this might be some indication of how the court would view that lawsuit too?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point, Caitlin. Do you think that this? I mean, that the fact that the the court ruled eight to one um, suggests that maybe we're beyond the partisanship when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, or no? <laughs> Definitely not. I meant on the court.
2: Uh, You know, even with that, I think that this was a pretty kind of an anomaly of a case, right, where, I mean, an eight to one ruling is pretty rare. It's pretty straightforward. But this was a kind of limited question of like, you know, does the government owe these insurers this money? Um, You know, the Chamber of Commerce was on the side of the ACA on this one. So it wasn't partisan in the way that the ACA is usually partisan. And I just think, I think that this was such a narrow issue. And yes, it had been a congressional issue. You know, there'd been some partisanship there, but I just think that this is narrow enough that this might be one of those ACA things that like, sure, this is not that partisan anymore, as other pieces of the ACA have become over time. But in general, like, do you like the law or not? And then do you, more importantly, as we're talking about now, do you think these pieces of it are constitutional or not? I just think that those are still going to continue to be hot button issues and it's complicated law. It's a giant law, which means that some parts are more controversial and legally dubious than others.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this was not, well, I should point out that this was not a victimless crime cutting off these payments. Um, When that funding went away, it sunk nearly all of the health insurance co-ops. Those were the consumer led insurers that Congress created when they couldn't create a public option because they didn't have the votes. Um, Here's a thought experiment: How might the ACA look different if the co-ops had actually survived rather than been cut off by the ending of these payments? I mean, would the do you think the marketplaces would be more vibrant? Um, they're 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 still sort of limping along. It's so funny having this conversation in this context
2: because you know, courts are always a. Uh... They're, they're a little behind the times. But, you know, I think the co-ops, when you look at the history, I remember years ago doing a deep dive on this, they were kind of supposed to be mini public options, right? Or they were the substitute for a public option. They were supposed to have the same function where basically they were supposed to provide a more al- affordable alternative. Now, whether they would have actually delivered on that goal, who knows? Uh, subject to interpretation, you know, we have no way of knowing that now because now they're dead. But, Um, And in the best case scenario, in what the writers of the law envisioned, they kind of would have been little nonprofit public options without the government backing where they did provide a more affordable alternative and made made more competitive marketplaces. So it's just kind of interesting in light of the debate we're having today that there was a little kind of backdoor here for the ACA to try to get at the same goal we're discussing today, injecting competition, and it didn't work. And so now – However many years later, we're back at that same table again.
0: Indeed. My question also is, if there were more co-ops, would there be more to build on going forward as the Democrats sort of look at the possibility of doing something to help the Affordable Care Act?
1: I mean, possibly. It's Like Caitlin said, it's so hard to look back and say, well, if this had happened, this would have happened. But, I mean, you might not have had the, a couple years ago, the Bexar counties, the super sky high premium increases every year. The marketplaces in the last year or two have sort of started to stable out a bit. But I mean, your premiums are still so much higher than they would have been if you hadn't had those increases a couple of years ago. And maybe the co-ops would have kept prices down. So the debate you might have been having might have been less about, quote unquote, moving beyond the Affordable Care Act and do it, looking at some of the things that a lot of Democrats now are talking about doing, whether or not they'll actually be able to see them through as an open question, but, you know, looking at things like increasing the size of subsidies and some of those smaller steps, yeah, that might have been more of where more Democrats are focused on as opposed to moving beyond the ACA entirely.
2: Thinking on this question a little bit more, the thing about health insurance prices is it's not just a ton of overhead for insurers. It's that the underlying prices are really high. The medical costs are high. Um, Part of the public options allure is that it takes the negotiating power of the federal government to drive those prices lower. The co-ops just wouldn't have had that same power. So looking back at it, maybe they were nonprofit, maybe some overhead is shaved off. Um, But at the end of the day, they just don't have the same kind of negotiating power that a public option would because they are not backed by the federal government.
0: So the COVID-19 pandemic is still raging in and around the nation's capital, where we all are. But the White House is focused on getting the nation reopened. We have more than half a dozen states now, including some with some pretty large caseloads like Georgia, reopening some places like bars and beauty salons, where social distancing is going to be pretty near impossible Meanwhile, public health experts, including lots of Republican public health experts, are cautioning that we need much more testing before things can be safely opened or we risk having a second wave that's even bigger than the first wave. Um, What are they recommending and why is no one listening to them?
2: You know, Julie, it's so weird to me that this has become partisan because when you think of it, some of it is common sense. If you send a bunch of sick people into a community, they're going to infect other people. Like, just because you're not having a huge coronavirus problem now doesn't mean you won't. Um, and it just seems like that concept is not being uh, universally embraced across the United States. And, um, you know, I just think some of it is kind of like a wishful thinking, right? That if you reopen the economy without these public health systems that you're alluding to in place, that you can just ignore the coronavirus and it'll eventually go away and only a couple people will get infected and die. And it's not based in reality. And so, you know, I think that uh, it's, I'm so tired of saying these phrases because it's so redundant and we still can't seem to get them right, but it's testing, contract tracing, isolation. Um, these basic public health tools that should have been in our toolkit a long time ago. We haven't been able to scale them up the way we need to yet. And we're going to have to in order to get people interacting with one another again. I also think what's surprising is that
1: oftentimes public health in the past, I feel like it hasn't necessarily been this partisan. These public health crises have often been times that actually bring the parties together. And so the fact that this crisis is still raging and you're already seeing the partisan split certainly isn't comforting in the thought of, you know, how lawmakers are addressing this. And I mean, just in terms of some of these places reopening, what I think is really interesting is that as you're thinking about reopening bars and restaurants, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't spoken to anyone who is saying, I feel comfortable going to have a meal at a restaurant right now. Um, And in Texas, I mean, Governor Abbott is saying that all of these restaurants are going to continue doing their delivery and pickup services. So it seems like a lot of these places are saying okay, we'll reopen, come if you want, but it is really skeptical, you know, are they going to have enough business to actually be reopened at this point?
0: Yeah, and that's, I mean, we're starting to see that, although, you know, the little bit that I've seen from some of the states that are reopening, you know, we are seeing some, if not a ton of customers, mostly we're seeing people on the beach in California, but that's a whole different thing. But I'm just, I'm surprised that, yeah, and I think, Mel, the idea that this is, you know, this might. Fifth or sixth public health crisis. And it does tend to be the one thing where the two sides come together, where it's not partisan. And this has been, I mean, it started out, you know, for five minutes, it wasn't partisan. But now it seems to be, you know, very partisan. And of course, they're all taking their lead from the president. And, you know, you, you see these briefings where they say, we've hit the peak and now we're coming down, except we haven't hit the peak in a lot of places. We've hit the peak in New York and possibly in California and New Orleans. and But, you know, we, as I say, here in D.C., Virginia, Maryland, it's still going up and it's going up pretty dramatically. I'm just I'm sort of surprised that public that the public health community isn't being more listened to. You know, I think for me, I cannot sympathize. I understand
2: You know, when we typically, when we talk about previous public health crises, none of them were like this, where the effects on the economy and on everyday life and on people's well-being have been enormous. And I understand just kind of the desire to want to move beyond that and start putting the economy back together and just to get outside and to see your loved ones and kind of accept additional risk. I mean, but as we've been saying, the problem is it's just not realistic. It's kind of a lack of acceptance of the situation, right, where just because we're tired of the consequences doesn't mean, and you see this over and over again, the economy is not going to rebound just because we want it to and we want to ignore the coronavirus. The coronavirus is going to get worse. That's going to have an economic effect if it's not handled correctly. And the only way out of this is to kind of really take a public health approach.
0: And it's not just us. I mean, if you look around the world, every single, co- I mean, it's terrifying. Every other country is grappling with basically exactly the same thing. It's also
1: really striking. I mean, you have Anthony Fauci, pretty much every public health expert that I've spoken spoken to in the last several weeks saying there is a very probable chance that in the next coming couple of months we have a second wave of this and that will come sooner rather than later if you open prematurely and you don't have the means and the capacity to like caitlin was saying test and contact trace and isolate cases and all of that and i'm no economic expert but i imagine that if you have that second second wave sooner and it kind of you know, as you're starting to get the economy back up, it kind of all comes crumbling down. It's probably even worse than where we are right now.
0: Yeah, that's that's it. Well, so we had a curious interlude this week. President Trump was very slow to invoke the Defense Production Act to get more ventilators made. But he has now used it to force meat packing plants to stay open despite several major COVID outbreaks at plants around the nation. Why is he so interested in the meat supply? I presume it's not just because he's a meat eater.
2: That's a great question. Uh, I cannot pretend to know why the president is so interested in meat. Um, But, you know, I think that obviously food supply is a really critical issue. I think a big fear, whether it's grounded in reality or not, is that we will experience food shortages. Um, And I think that this might be kind of one of those emotional things where, yes, we could experience some kind of meat shortage um, if all the meat production plants stop operating, right? Like that's just kind of common sense. Uh, on the other hand, first of all, not everyone needs meat to eat. That doesn't mean we're going to have an overall food shortage, but big picture, this is kind of a petri dish of what we've been talking about, right? Like just because you're ordering these meat production plants to operate and bring their workers in, or you can, I guess you can't order, you can order them to be operating, but you cannot force people to come to work, right? People can take sick leave or quit or whatever. You can just have all kinds of problems where if all your workers are sick, that's really going to affect your output. Axios wrote today about how, um, this could be a major liability issue where it becomes very legal. This is just this could be another case of wishful thinking where just because you're telling these workers in these meat production plant, plants to be operating and go back to work, that doesn't mean there's not going to be huge problems which p- potentially
0: preclude them from doing so. Well, that's that's sort of what struck me about this that he said that the plants have to stay open. But don't worry if your workers get sick and die, we're going to give you liability protection so they can't sue you. Um, it, it strikes me as the maybe that's not the way. I mean, I, I get the point about protecting the meat supply. And I think that Trump is very worried about, you know, he's obviously one of the reasons he wants to open up is he's worried about his reelection. He's worried about, you know, the people who are stuck inside and not sick and not making any money and the idea that they could then go to the grocery store and not only not be able to get toilet paper and flour, but not be able to get meat freaks him out. Um, But I feel like this sort of the the liability part of this has been sort of undercovered. That's a lot of these meat packers have wanted, you know, have been up against OSHA for a really long time.
1: I think you're going to see these liability issues coming up a bit more in the next aid package that Congress is considering, Um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has been talking a lot about, you know, trying to include some sort of liability protection for employers in the next package. He's kind of putting that down as, you know, his top priority for this upcoming package. Democrats are pushing back against it. So, you know, I do expect that with this next package, it's going to be more partisan overall, as each kind of package that Congress has passed has gotten a little bit more contentious to get through. But I do think that some of those liability protections are going to be pushing forward. Um, and just one quick note on your earlier point was that um, since President Trump, you know, used the DPA to, you know, push the meat manufacturers to open, a lot of his allies in states that are heavy have praised the decision. I know I know, um, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa has been very vocal in her praise of the president for doing this. So, This might have been something that he's hearing from his allies in some of these key states as well. Um, You know, Iowa will probably be an important state in the election later this year. So that might be something that he's considering as well.
0: An important Senate race, too. Yes. All right, well, before we're going to get to politics in a minute, but one more thing I should mention, we saw the first potentially good news about a treatment in that the drug remdesivir is showing at least some small benefit for the most seriously ill patient. These are very early results, not yet peer-reviewed, but at least it was an official double-blind placebo study conducted under the auspices of the National Institutes of Health, Um I find myself a little concerned that people are going to take this. You know, I've seen some of the headlines that, you know, oh, wow, you know, we now we have a treatment and or a cure. And this really isn't either. Is this one of those cases where where people may read too much into this small piece of good news? Maybe.
2: Uh, The delivery of news about remdesivir has also been extremely confusing. There's been a lot of it. It's been hard to sort through. And, you know, we saw this with hydroxychloroquine, where the president himself really latched onto it as a potential treatment or cure. We saw just the prescriptions skyrocket that was a drug that was already in circulation that other people needed um we saw it going to shortage for people with lupus or arthritis rheumatoid arthritis um and now now it probably doesn't we're seeing a lot of signs it might not work or probably doesn't work so i think that when people are desperate for some hope yes they might latch on to this i don't know i don't know how that impacts their behavior But especially if the president latches onto it the way he has with other drugs like hydroxychloroquine, that could be that could end up being very interesting in a potentially harmful way.
0: Apparently, the stock market was like thrilled about the possibility. I don't I don't know. I don't know how expert in public health the stock market is because it went sort of (sighs) (laughs) skyrocketing. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, I think we're a long way from, you know, actually being able to cure this. I also think people are just so
1: desperate for any sort of sense of we'll be able to get back to some sort of normalcy. And there's not necessarily a, appreciation for how long some of these clinical trials and actually figuring out how effective and worthwhile a drug is for a lot of these things is. So, like you were saying, like, you know, people hear good news and it's like, okay, yes, we have a lead, even if it's, you know, kind of just like a small nugget of a placebo trial, not a full clinical trial or anything. But, People are so desperate for, we have a treatment or anything that might, you know,
0: allow us to get back to some sort of normalcy here. Well, speaking of normalcy, Congress is coming back to Washington next week, sort of. The Senate will be in session, says Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, but the House was supposed to come back and now it isn't at the recommendation of the uh, House's Office of the Attending Physician. Two questions. Why is it okay for the Senate to come back but not the House? And how is the House doing on figuring out a way to operate remotely?
1: I don't think we've gotten really a clear answer on why it's okay for the Senate to come back and not for the House. Steny Hoyer, the majority leader of the House, kind of said that his reasoning for not bringing the House back was on the guidance of the Capitol attending physician, who is also the attending physician of the Senate. We have not heard from Senate Republican leaders whether or not they consulted the physician or whether or not they're ignoring advice from him, but they do seem to be, full steam ahead on coming back. Um Democrats are starting to be a little bit more vocal and pushing back on this. You had Diane Feinstein, who is I believe the oldest senator, writing a letter to McConnell last night saying this is not a good idea. You're starting to see some Democrats saying if we're going to come back, we should really be doing coronavirus focused oversight, bringing in members of the administration to talk about this, figuring out what have we done so far, how it's working, and instead the Republicans plan, you know, they say are planning to ram ahead with nominations. The Judiciary Committee does have a judicial nomination hearing next week, but at least the HELP Committee led by Lamar Alexander did notice a coronavirus um, focused hearing for next week. So you might see a few things of coronavirus focus, but that doesn't necessarily seem like it might be the primary focus on the Senate floor,
0: at least. And do we think the House is ever going to figure out how to vote remotely? I mean, one of the things they said this week was that it's easier for the Senate with 100 people to social distance than the House with 435. And that's clearly true. Although, as you point out, the Senate sort of, by and large, their average age is way older and like. Most of them are in the, you know, the, the risk uh, group for this maybe not a good idea to be wandering around your, your workplace. I covered, you know, the House after 9-11, and there was a lot of talk about, um, you know, continuation after, you know, a terrorist attack, or uh, they never really sort of finished this idea of there should be a way for the House to function when everybody isn't in the Capitol building, and they're just not there yet, Right. No,
1: I they definitely aren't there yet. Um, you know, there this bipartisan working group has, you know, been having discussions on this. They seem to be a little bit closer on maybe figuring out how committees might meet. They don't seem to have a solid way of voting via distance. Um, and one thing that's interesting is that the House will have to come back to vote on any changes like that. So, it'll be interesting, you know, as this if the Senate is already back, like how will that affect the House? when and if they have a reason to come back, you know, at what point is in the virus at? Might it be too late? It definitely seems a little up in the air how they're going to do this. But yeah, I'm not sure. You had heard at one point that um, they were, the Democrats were planning on voting on their proposal, regardless of if they came up with a deal from Republicans. But now obviously they're not planning to come back next week. So that kind of gives this group more time to try to work through an idea.
0: Which which brings me to my next question. Obviously there's going to be a, you know, a coronavirus relief bill, I would call this five, but I guess they're calling it four because the last one was apparently three and a half. Um, but <laughs> what do we? So we already know. Mel, you said that the Republicans want liability. The Democrats obviously want money for state and local government, so that they won't when you know the economy opens up, they won't have to lay off all their teachers and first responders. Um, what else are we thinking might end up in this bill, or that that? various sides want to end up in this bill.
1: The Trump administration has said they're looking at another round of direct payments to people. So that's one thing that might come up. Um, Democrats also have thrown out a whole range of issues in the last couple of weeks, looking at the medical supply chain, hazard pay for frontline workers. So it really seems like beyond those couple of things that you mentioned,
0: the world of where we could choose to include, what we could choose to include in this package, it's really quite large. Caitlin, are there things that, that that the Democrats are going to sort of lay down on the tracks
2: for? Probably. But I wanted to point out that the health industry is a huge lobbyist here. And it's kind of this interesting situation where they're the people on the front lines of this, the hospitals and doctors and ambulances and whatnot. But just from my conversations, it's, it's gotten to the point where everyone kind of sees this as a money pot, right? So everyone's coming forward, the entire healthcare industry, every tangential player and asking for money. And I think it's gotten to the point where, uh, you know, I think it's hard to assess who needs what. And I think that that's, it's kind of the political climate where you can't really say no to the healthcare industry right now. Um, And I think that they know that. So anyway, so I think that all that is to say in this next package, I'm sure there will be some more money for uh, hospitals, doctors, frontline, I don't, whoever is I mean, it's a good question of who, uh, because that's also been a fight. You know, which healthcare workers will get more money? But it's just something to keep an eye on, and it's it's unpopular to keep a critical eye on it right now. But it's I think there's some murmurs about okay, are we really uh, tracking this money flow when it comes to these healthcare providers, and are we allocating it in a very in a fair way?
0: Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of stories about how, you know, the the richer hospitals are getting more of the money than the hospitals that are just barely keeping their doors open. Um, All right, well, obviously, we will have more on this next week. Um, One more thing I wanted to address this week, and I have labeled this last topic palace intrigue, um, but I don't mean it lightly. There were a bunch of stories last week that Alex Azar might be on his way out as Secretary of Health and Human Services, that the president is unhappy with how his agency has handled the pandemic, or, equally likely the president is looking for someone to blame. Uh, The president denied that he was going to fire Azar and so far Azar is still there. But there's a deeper question here. Does all the jostling among Trump aides who are trying to do their jobs and not anger the boss and maybe try to shoot down their rivals at the same time actually detract from the effort of trying to combat the pandemic? They do not seem to all be sort of rowing in the same direction here.
2: I don't see how it couldn't hurt the effort. I mean, these are the people tasked with running it. And their minds are clearly elsewhere, if not their actions. Part of it is just Trump's management style. It's been well reported on, well documented. It's chaotic. It just is. A lot of this is managing the boss. So, you know, Azar's greatest sin recently uh, is that the White House suspects him of kind of um, having a hand in leaks that portray Azar as the hero that was trying to sound the alarm early while the White House and the president himself did not listen. That is like a huge no-no in Trump world. You know, when you're thinking, I just think it's, it's kind of a common sense thing. When you're thinking about a pandemic response, like how much of your brain is focused on politics and how much of it isn't? If a large part of Your brain is focused on navigating these personnel minefields. I mean, that's a that's time that is taken away from pandemic response. Yeah, I mean, there's no way that this
1: kind of political jockeying for you know who has the ear over the president and who is in favor and who's out of favor can't be a distraction when really the entire focus should be on responding to the pandemic. And I mean. There's some question to, like, how how has all of this, this political jockeying, you know, affected the administration's handling of it so far? And a ver- variety of different ways they've responded to it. But this isn't necessarily the first time that you've heard in the last—obviously, there have been rumors about, is Azar on the way out for months? But, you know, even just a few weeks ago, you heard, is Anthony Fauci on the way out? Now it's Azar. You know, this definitely seems to be some sort of interest in looking for a scapegoat, someone to blame— In sort of how the administration has responded to the pandemic in the last several weeks, and especially the beginning of it with the botched testing rollout and everything like that. So, yeah, of course, that's going to, you know, take away from your ability to truly focus on it. And it's got to be really difficult for, you know, all of just the rank and file career staffers at HHS who are trying to deal with this to, you know, kind of be every which way on where the secretary is going. I mean, that can't be helpful for just your regular employees there. so. Yeah, there's no no way that this is necessarily a good time for this, but I think it's a little bit inevitable also that it's also happening.
2: I think it's crazy. It's just gotten to the point, some of the people who are assessing the situation say, okay, Azar cannot get fired right now because that would be crazy, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic response. But then the counterpoint to that is that things are already so crazy. Like if the HHS secretary gets fired in the midst of a pandemic, it's kind of about the same level of chaos as the status quo which is a wild thought
0: it is and you're right it would be all right well we will obviously talk about more of that next week too um that is all the time we have for the news this week now we will play my bill of the month interview with carmen heredia rodriguez then we will come back and do our extra credits for this week Are pleased to welcome to the podcast my Kaiser Health News colleague, Carmen Heredia Rodriguez, who wrote the current bill of the month. Welcome back to the podcast, Carmen. Thanks for having me, Julie. So, this month's bill is not surprisingly about a patient who thought she might have COVID 19. Who is she and what prompted her to go to the doctor?
3: Anna Davis Abel is a graduate student studying creative writing at West Virginia University, and she developed symptoms, particularly a low-level fever and a cough, a couple of days after she came back from a literary conference in San Antonio, Texas. She also lives with lupus, which is a chronic autoimmune condition that makes viruses like, obviously, the novel coronavirus, and things as simple as the flu really dangerous for her. So she went ahead and went to the doctor in order to get checked out to see what was the cause of her symptoms.
0: And this was pretty early in the, you know, before there was even a pandemic declared, right? This was early March. So she went to the doctor the same day the
3: WHO declared the pandemic. And in West Virginia, there hadn't been any cases identified yet.
0: And West Virginia, I think, was the last state to have cases, if I remember correctly.
3: Correct. It was the very last state to identify a case.
0: So she goes to the doctor, um and he and I guess she wants a COVID-19 test. And he basically says, we have to rule everything else out first, because we can't get the test. There were not that many tests in the middle of March. So what what happens?
3: Exactly. So the doctor in Abel's medical notes specifically said, I'm going to test her for a bunch of other respiratory diseases, because we have a shortage of COVID-19 tests in the state. So she went ahead and did that to to Davis Abel. And then it turns out that she tested positive for influenza type B. So essentially she tested positive for the flu. So uh, then as they say the bill came. What did she get charged for all of these tests? So in the end, she was charged $536, and that included her co-insurance, her co and part of the deductible that she still hadn't paid off. And she was really confused, understandably so, because her insurer, Aetna, had already pledged to cover COVID-19-related testing at no cost to their members.
0: So the doctor and the lab that, that she dealt with were both in-network um, what eventually
3: happened in this case? So, Aetna eventually approved the appeal that she submitted to them challenging the bill. Um, conveniently, I would say, Etna had also received a couple of calls from reporters regarding her case, and they approved it after they received those several calls. So ultimately, the cost was retroactively covered by her insurer, and she also received money from two Good Samaritans on the internet. Um, after she tweeted her story out, they sent her the full amount of the bill for this testing, and ultimately, they gave her permission to apply that money to other medical bills that she is still
0: paying off from previous procedures. So the story had a happy ending for her, But even though Congress has passed two separate bills to ensure that people seeking care for what they think might be COVID-19 won't have to pay out of pocket for either tests or treatment, that's not always the case, right? Right. So the experts that I spoke with identified two loopholes
3: that people with insurance may fall in that may end up with them holding the bag for the cost of their care. So one of them is the fact that these services are only covered if the end of the visit ends up in the doctor ordering or administering a COVID-19 test. So if you live in a place where they're trying to conserve tests and the doctor doesn't immediately order or administer a COVID-19 test, even though you have symptoms, and even though they may suspect that you have COVID, you may be holding the bag for the cost of those services during the visit. And even though that's
0: why you went to the doctor.
3: Exactly. Even though you went to the doctor and tried to do the right thing by getting checked out and make sure that you're not contagious with anything, you may still end up
0: bearing the cost of those services. And what's the other case where you might end up with a bill? So the second
3: loophole is the law prohibits insurers from charging patients for testing, but it doesn't block medical providers for doing so. So even though the insurer may cover the full amount, if it doesn't cover the total amount that's, re- that's requested by the provider, the provider may go ahead and balance bill or slap a patient with a surprise bill the services. Ah,
0: the old surprise bills are back. Exactly. So what should people do if they feel like they're being wrongly charged for COVID-related testing or treatment beyond uh, staking your case on social media? <laughs> It's just what our patient here did. Well, it was effective for her, so maybe just sounding the alarm
3: may be an effective strategy for folks. But I spoke to the insurer, Aetna, and they said to go ahead and call customer service. If they if you're a member of Aetna, go ahead and call. And if you think that this should have been if you think that your bill should have been covered because it was related to COVID, call your insurer, have a talk with them and see if they're able to retroactively cover it. And as always, contest the bill. and call your provider. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask providers even before you get COVID-19 tested um, to to check the cost. Ask. How much is it? Ask whether the insurer will cover it and ask whether the provider is going ahead and balance billing folks or if they're um, pledging to also provide this treatment without cost sharing.
0: And obviously, if all else fails, our KHN NPR Bill of the Month portal is still open. As always. (laughs) Carmen Heredia Rodriguez, thank you so much. Thanks, Julie. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Caitlin, what do you have for us this week? I selected
2: a story by my Axios coworker, Brian Walsh, uh, titled Why the Coronavirus Feels So Risky. Brian is our future correspondent, and he actually has an interesting background. He was in Asia during the SARS outbreak several years ago, and so this is not his first rodeo with a pandemic. But he was just kind of pointing out all the things we know we do not know about the coronavirus, such as the fatality rate, the number of cases – the impact on the the human body. You know, we thought it was primarily respiratory disease. Now we're seeing heart attacks and strokes and new list of, a long list of organs the virus can attack. People's toes falling off. Right, right. And so just the more, it seems like, basically the piece points out that the, this has been going on for a while, and we still don't understand it very well. And that makes it pretty hard to respond to both individually and on a societal level. And so at some point, we're going to have to both learn more and make decisions about how to navigate this risk. And I just thought it was a really interesting, because it's so true. Um, and so it just really struck me as how we're kind of flying half blind here um, at a really critical
0: juncture. Yes, pe- people hate that. Um, Mel, so I wanted to flag
1: a story by my colleague, Emily Klopp, um, titled Amazon Workers Tally Virus Cases Voice Alarms About Risk. And she spoke to several Amazon employees who are independently tracking cases at warehouses that the company owns across the country. And they've found more than 600 cases among um, Amazon employees um, around the country, while spokespeople for the organization have said they don't have an exact count of how many employees. And you know, I think this is really important because Amazon is obviously one of the country's largest employers. It's also probably an employee, an employer that, you know, thousands of Americans are relying on probably more frequently than they often do right now because they're trying to, you know, order so many different things online. So they, course, these employees said, we're going to start tracking, you know, when they get voicemails and calls saying we have, you know, an, another coronavirus case in your area, um, and they've also, you know, reported, you know, having signs around their warehouses and hearing from employers kind of being told, hey, like, if you get asked if for social distancing appropriately, just say yes, even if we're not having stand up meetings in the morning to talk about your assignments. So I thought that was an important story to note, just especially, like I said, everyone's relying on Amazon probably more than they even usually do right now.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, who, who realized, you know, six months ago, we would have to be worried about, you know, personal protective equipment, not just for healthcare workers, but for meat packers and Amazon workers. But we do. And right. we're not getting it. Yeah, All right, well, delivery
1: man. <laughs> yeah.
0: So mine is by my former uh, Kaiser Health News colleague, Sydney Lupkin, who's now at NPR. It's called What Would It Take to Bring More Pharmaceutical Manufacturing Back to the U.S.? And it's about something I've been wondering about for a while now. Why aren't we paying more attention to the fact that so many of our drugs and drug ingredients are made overseas? According to the story, only 28% of ingredient manufacturing facilities for U.S. drugs that are sold here are now themselves made in the U.S., even if the pandemic had not reached our shores. A shutdown in China as we've seen, does very bad things to our supply chain. And while it might not be such a terrible thing to wait a few more months for a new iPhone, the same can't be said for people who take life-saving medications." Um, so that is our show for this week. Special thanks this week and all weeks to our ace engineer, Francis Ying, who makes all the magic happen. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at Health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Caitlin? I'm at Caitlin and Owens. At Mel McIntyre. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.